Okay, I think we're all set up here. Uh, aside from the baby's toys, this is my studio for the morning. So let's sign on to Zoom here, see what my co-hosts are up to, and get this show started. The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow, the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. And during this chaotic time, SunGrow is committed to protecting its employees and reliably serving customers around the world as renewable energy and battery storage expands. Learn more about SunGrow's work at sungrowpower.com. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by CorePower. CorePower is a leading U.S.-based developer of battery cell technology, serving utility, industrial, and mission-critical markets across the globe. CorePower is dedicated to promoting widespread energy storage adoption while keeping manufacturing domestic in order to stabilize and protect the U.S. grid. It manufactures the 1500-volt Mark I energy storage system, which features best-in-class safety features, market-leading energy density, and low installation and operation costs. Find out more at corepower.com. That's core. K-O-R-E, corepower.com. Green Tech Media Podcast. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey. I'm a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, what will a changing Supreme Court mean for a changing climate? We'll look at the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg's environmental influence on America's highest court and how a conservative court could enable Trump's regulatory rollbacks or thwart Biden's climate ambitions. Then, as the demand for gasoline flatlines, are energy companies banking on a permanent gusher of plastics? We dive into a recent investigation into the greenwashing on plastic recycling. Then, lastly, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has been very busy. What does it mean for energy aggregators and for rooftop solar and behind-the-meter storage? Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my co-hosts. They're here to talk about these stories and more. Jigger's president and co-founder of Generate Capital. He's in Bethesda, Maryland. Hey, Jigger. Hey, how are you? I'm doing well. Catherine is out there in Arlington, Virginia. She's the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions. Hello, Catherine. Hello. Hope everybody's doing well. We missed you last week. Yes. Do you notice anything different about me right now? Ooh, ZZ Top. <laughs> yeah, I'm in my car right now, <laughs> wearing a trucker hat and a large beard. Yeah, he's not homeless. He's just looking for a place that, you know, would have good sound quality. <laughs> I have towels up all around the car. I've got my shotgun mic put into the dog grate that separates the back of the car from the baby. So so here we are. I'm recording in the Berkshire Mountains in my car. I, I'm battling people doing construction on their houses and mowers. Turns out that the city is actually a better place to record because you have this wash of white noise. <laughs> so who knows? Maybe you'll hear some hammering or some mowing behind me. We are grieving the loss of a legal giant this week. As we record, we're still waiting to find out who will be nominated to take the place of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. When it comes to energy and climate, most of the important questions at the Supreme Court swirl around regulations. Remember your basics of American government. Congress makes the laws, then agencies like the EPA or the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration turn that into rules that businesses have to follow. So how much leeway should those agencies have to implement those rules? That is where justices differ. And those differences can create vastly different outcomes for how we address things like pollution from power plants or greenhouse gases that warm the planet. So we're going to talk a little bit about Ruth Bader Ginsburg and um, her impact on the court, zone in on environmental issues, and think through the lasting impacts related to climate action or inaction. Catherine, over to you. Um, I know Ruth Bader Ginsburg was an inspiration to so many women. Um, what role did she have on your career and way of seeing the world? And what do you think her legacy is? Yeah, I was super sad on Friday when the announcement came in. It just, I, I felt it because I had long kind of looked to her as really an icon for women's rights and civil rights in a really smart, nuanced way. And I think that 
extends to other sectors like environmental issues. I I once had to give, you know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and I both went to Cornell at different times. And I gave a speech at Cornell one time where they said that the attire was business casual. So I wore a suit and under my suit, I had a notorious RBG t-shirt on uh, just because she was just, she was just the coolest and the best person that I knew that had ever gone to my alma mater. So I really thought she was an amazing human being and an icon really for women and others everywhere. And hearing what a partnership she had with her husband uh, also was just really inspirational. You know, I'm in a, I'm in a marriage similar to that where, you know, the, the husband is not threatened by um, his wife's, uh, you know, business or intellect or anything like that. And I think that just, it, it, she was just very self-assured and very consistent, and yet she also was able to grow as she went through her tenure as a justice. So Justice Ginsburg is not necessarily known for her work specifically on the environment, but she did play an important role on some environmental issues. Jigger, what is her impact on some of the key environmental issues um, at the high court? Well, I think that the the ones that people talk about the most are the uh, upholding of, you know, the fact that climate change and greenhouse gas emissions are able to be regulated by EPA, right? And so, you know, that started with the Massachusetts ruling, but it also roped in the American Electric Power versus Connecticut ruling. Interestingly enough, though, Ginsburg ruled against states being able to pursue power plants with public nuisance laws, and instead said that if you really wanted to deal with these power plants, then you have to deal with carbon emissions at the federal level through EPA. So in one hand, she sort of reduced the ability of states to manage their own uh, backyard, and then on the other hand, strengthened EPA. And I'd say that in general, she was a reliable vote for the environment. But, you know, I mean, but she was such a champion uh, on other social issues that that I, I'm, I'm not sure that I would say that her environmental record is where she s- sought to distinguish herself. Mm-hmm. Catherine, what was Ginsburg's view of the world on agency authority to develop regulations? So I'm thinking about the Clean Power Plan, for example. After Massachusetts versus EPA in 2007, that emboldened the incoming Obama administration to create a rule using the Clean Air Act to regulate carbon emissions um, as dangerous to human health. And uh, she she generally would look at agency authority and say, well, if you've done the research, if you've, uh, you know, proven that there's a lot behind this rule, then she would give deference to agencies. Can you talk a little bit more about her view of the world as it relates to agency authority? Yeah, there was a big case called Chevron versus NRDC in 1984 that really gave agencies a lot more leeway to interpret statutes that were vague or silent on a particular issue. And she pretty much adhered to that. There's also this delegation doctrine where, you know, Congress can really give unlimited authority to agencies to promulgated rules um, without having to write them themselves. And she was much more trusting of what agencies could do and trusted their expertise more. I think there has been a concerted effort in recent years, and certainly with a shift in the Supreme Court, there will be much stronger effort to turn back Chevron and try to rein in the ability for agencies to move forward independently. Can you remind us what that case was all about? Yeah, the Clean Air Act required states that had not yet achieved national air quality standards to establish a permit program regulating new or modified major stationary sources of pollution, such as manufacturing plants. And the EPA passed a regulation under that act that allows states to treat air all pollution emitting devices in the same industrial grouping as though they were a single bubble, like all cars, right, as one sort of emitter. And under this bubble provision, plants may install or modify one piece of equipment without needing a permit if the alteration does not increase the total emissions of the plant. Several environment groups, environmental groups, including NRDC, challenged the bubble provision as contrary to the act. And so basically, like people thought they had a pass based on their baseline emissions. So if they made changes to their plant but didn't increase emissions from the baseline, then 
they were good. And NRDC said, no, you're not good. Like if 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 you increase emissions one place and decrease another place, like we could still regulate you. So let's game this out. Um, let's assume for the sake of this conversation that Republicans are able to get a conservative justice on the court, um, either before the election or during the lame duck period after the election. So if we have a much more conservative court. What will that look like for a Trump administration or for a potential Biden administration? Catherine, um, how bad is this? <laughs> <laughs> well, so just remember, it was 5-4 conservative on the court. And this nomination would be the first that would tip it so that this would be the first president in a while that would be able to actually change the makeup of the court rather than just replacing party for party. So this would actually put it into a 6-3 Republican Democrat. Okay, so right there, that's a huge difference in just the numbers. I spoke with David Bookbinder, who is the senior counsel at the Niskanen Center. He was the counsel at the Sierra Club who initiated and managed Massachusetts versus EPA case. So he has seen a lot of this. And I asked him what he thought would happen. And he said, nothing environmentally good will come out of a Trump appointment. (laughs) Uh, The issue is how bad will they be? And so you'll have to see who the nominee is. And a lot of them actually don't have much of a record of jurisprudence. So the person who looks like might be at the top of the list is Amy Coney Barrett, who was recently confirmed to be a Seventh Circuit federal appellate judge. And she's a positive for the Republicans on a couple ways. One is she is very conservative. She does not have much of a record. So it's a little bit unknown how she would rule on certain things, especially on the environment. But she was recently vetted by the Senate. So Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, could just take her directly to the floor for a vote rather than even having to go through a hearing process because she was she was just recently put through those paces. And so I think that, you know, that makes her go to the top if they can kind of get her through quickly. And then it sort of remains to be seen what will happen when she's in place. But but the whole goal then would be that Bookbinder said was to keep things out of the Supreme Court that have any environmental impact. So even if you lose um, at a lower court, better to just stay silent than to take it to the Supreme Court, because then you'll have a ruling that will affect the entire nation rather than maybe just one region. And this is what excites me, right? I mean, look, I I, I don't think it's great that you know, that RBG passed away at um, this moment in time or at all. But um, but I do think that the environmental movement deserves criticism for moving everything to EPA and moving everything to the Supreme Court and abandoning their state roots. And I think that one of the things that would happen here is that the environmental movement would go more grassroots and actually do the real work at the state level, as opposed to trying to cop out at the the federal level um, around these broad sweeping regulations. And even when they get them, in the case of Massachusetts, the Obama administration fumbled it heroically with the Clean Power Plan. So it's not like they actually even knew how to manage CO2 emissions, even when they had the right to do so under EPA. Um, and so one of the things that I struggle with is with, with RBG's rulings around states' rights my sense is, is that we all should be pushing for more states' rights, where all of our gains have really been is at the state level. I think that at the federal level, you can get you know basic regulation done around toxics, and you can get basic regulations for clean energy done around tax credits and stimulus. But the notion that we're going to pass a clean energy standard or the notion that we're going to pass sweeping federal legislation at a time when we are so electorally challenged with, you know, the Senate, the way it's made up, et cetera, seems fanciful. And so I hope this actually, you know, has the positive um, story arc where we all like redouble our efforts at the state levels. But part of the blame also needs to be put on Congress. I mean, the last time they really wrote any very specific regulation was in the 1990 amendments to the Clean Air Act. That was a long time ago. So they they continually give the agencies more and more authority. And right now, the administration has more power than Congress. And it shouldn't be that way. Congress needs to be able to start writing much more specific legislation that really directs and leaves less up to interpretation by agencies and the Supreme Court. And I mean, that is where the rub is, right? Is that 
Congress won't do that right now. And so, you know, part of it is not just going back to the states, but trying to elect people who are actually going to do their jobs and write real legislation and regulation that will be durable and withstand any administration and withstand Supreme Court. But that won't happen. Right. I mean, that's that's true. What you said is exactly true. But right. But who who sees a world in which that happens? Right. But this is the challenge. Right. I mean, the last time that we had real momentum in doing that was under the four pollutants bill under George W. Bush. And there was a lot of animosity between the environmental groups and the and the administration at that point. Remember, people really hated George W. Bush because of the war in Iraq, et cetera. And, you know, Pew Charitable Trust basically almost bankrupted their environmental um, budget to try to get everyone behind the four pollutants bill and and wasn't successful. Like, I mean, I do think that in general, um, this whole area has been um, very fraught. And, and I understand why... Um, People who believe climate change is real and is here and now feel like there's an intense urgency for getting things done. But I, I don't know that people um, provide legitimacy to the other point of view at uh, the Supreme Court within the conservative justices. I do think that EPA has, you know, taken positions within the Clean Air Act and Clean Water Acts that were never intended by Congress. It is Congress's job to actually tell EPA what they intended and pass updated legislation. I think you agree that that seems highly unlikely. And so I think we're at this impasse. But my sense is, is that, you know, like many other issues, having the courts decide things and legislate from the bench is not a great look. And it does continuously bite us in the ass. Yes, that's true. But we all know that we live in a world in which executive authority is going to probably guide any climate policy under a theoretical Biden administration. And in that world, that authority is under serious threat at district courts and at the Supreme Court now. So this seems like it is throwing a lot of cold water on any potential climate ambitions that the Biden administration has it's very worrisome. Well, one thing a Biden administration would do is, you know, there's this uh, replacement to the clean power plan, which never did get to the Supreme Court. Remember, the administration changes. So there's this Affordable Clean Energy Act that the Trump administration put forward. That is going to have a hearing in the Court of Appeals on October 8th. So by the time that decision comes down, if it's a Biden administration, they can simply decline to defend that. And so that would at least be nullified and they would then have to start over. I mean, the thing is the clean power plan at this point is completely obsolete because we've moved past it already. So they would need to come up with something else. I think you're right that the Supreme Court is inclined to roll back um, agency authority. And obviously that cuts both ways. Um, so, you know, you you want you want more authority when Congress is not on your side. And, you know, when Congress is on your side, which could be the case, too, then you can get more done and get more durable solutions. I mean, part of the issue is Congress needs to act much more specifically, but not too specifically. Remember, I mean, it's it's not horrible that the Clean Air Act says pollutants. Um, and then, you know, you may not know what all those pollutants are, but if something is determined to be a pollutant, then it falls into that category because we don't know necessarily what's happening in the future with, you know, innovation, technology, new understanding of things, science. We don't necessarily know. So your laws have to be specific enough to be able to give agencies direction at the same time, be open enough to be able to accommodate change. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. I, I just, I guess what I would say is that when you look at the Obama administration, which is basically at the same place as a new Biden administration would be, um, what they got done, in my opinion, was really the stimulus and then the implementation of the stimulus. And almost all of the executive orders have at this point been rolled back um, in substantial form. And so I don't know that executive authority is durable and it certainly doesn't lead to 25-year investments by companies like ours. So my sense is, is that it really is the stimulus bill that we're looking to. And to the extent that the Congress can come up with um, laws, uh, that's great. But, you know, I'm, I'm more, you know, I've set my sights on the stimulus bill. 
Yeah, give the agencies money and let them spend it. Okay, well, final question on this. Let's say we get a second Trump term. What does this do to thwart legal challenges against his deregulation agenda? Well, in general, I'm not... The deregulation agenda is is what it is, and it's certainly been an agenda of the Republican Party since the since Reagan was elected in the 80s. I think that um, the part that I struggle with the most is that I think he has an anti-federalism agenda. And so I'm trying to figure out how that squares with the court, right? Republican parties used to always be the party of letting the states have more uh, rights, right? And the states have more autonomy. And so when California comes to the federal government for a waiver on single payer, for instance, um, or, you know, says, hey, you know, like, uh, we want to regulate internal combustion engines or electric vehicles or whatnot. Um, and you have 14 other states that have said that they're copying California. Um, I want to know whether, you know, the Republican Party no longer believes in federalism. Um, and that, to me, is the jurisprudence that, like, I'm sorting out within the new court. And it's not clear to me that the six justices that would be conservative all have the same point of view on that topic. Yeah, and I'm really interested to see how they interpret Chevron and this non-delegation doctrine to see if they continue to pull back on agency authority, especially if Trump is the administration, uh, what is that going to do to what he's trying to get done? And I just think environmentalists are going to not want to get cases heard by the Supreme Court. Let's just hit the pause button for a second before we move on and talk about our sponsors. We're brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow took the COVID-19 outbreak very seriously from the beginning, and it retooled its factories to protect its workers to make sure that it got products to customers on time and safely. The company is collaborating closely with both suppliers and customers to ensure it delivers inverter solutions safely and on schedule to developers around the world. And as a leading supplier of solar inverters in the U.S., SunGrow has also leveraged its network across the country to distribute face masks to communities in need. You can find out about SunGrow's COVID work and its many products at sungrowpower.com. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by CorePower. Based in the U.S., CorePower is situated to meet the growing global demand of the energy storage market. In fact, CorePower is building the first large-scale battery cell manufacturing facility in the U.S. owned by an American company. And it's going to have 12 gigawatt hours of scalable manufacturing capacity once it's operational. From sourcing critical minerals... To battery recycling management, CorePower, with its partners, offers an end-to-end energy storage management solution. CorePower's newly commissioned 2-gigawatt-hour Chinese factory is currently shipping product to customers for integration and testing. And you can find out more at corepower.com, K-O-R-E, corepower.com. All of us have noticed it. The plastic on the beach, the little pieces of plastic in the beach sand— Plastic is sprayed through the air when our fleece jackets tumble in the dryer. Plastic pellets drain out of pipes along the Gulf Coast. You are eating, swallowing, or breathing a credit card's worth of plastic each week, a study last year found. That's it's just remarkable. Now an investigation by NPR and Frontline has uncovered that we were lulled into complacency by the plastic makers themselves, pushing the false narrative that plastic is actually being recycled. So you know all those labels on the bottom of every piece of plastic that probably goes through your life? Well, most of those are probably bogus. It confuses consumers, it makes recycling uh, less economic, and the system itself is completely broken. And The oil companies that make plastic have known that for a long time. So a reminder here, plastic is made from crude oil or natural gas, and plastics are a crucial stream of revenue for fossil fuel companies, maybe even now more than ever. Jigger, tell us about this investigation. What did it find? So the plastics industry really knew that the the plastics they were making um, as early as 1973 we're just not going to be easy to recycle. I think they knew that going in. But I think that the main thing that I think we should keep in context is that people were demanding plastic, right? It wasn't like people were happy with, you know, the bottles they were receiving and then trusting those bottles were being 
you know, like uh, cleaned properly and then getting fresh milk out of those bottles, right? I mean, there was a lot of fear of germs and single-use plastics was one of the ways that a lot of folks got comfortable with the fact that they were protecting their family, right? And so there was a need by the American Plastics Council, which became the American Chemical Council, to give people reassurance that their their main like instincts around using single-use plastics were fine. Um, and so in 1988, they started a big campaign. And funny enough, I was a part of it because um, I was a Boy Scout at the time doing my Eagle Scout project. And we got money from the American Chemical Council to you know, put out recycling bins to every single commu- uh, household in our community. And I spent a whole weekend putting all the stickers on the tabs, the, the tubs and, and distributing them. So um, it was a big effort, right? Every single community across the country got subsidized to put out those recycling bins, et cetera. And they knew wholeheartedly that recycling rates were going to be astonishingly low. One is that it's a pain, right? Like a lot of these plastics are dirty. And so you're taking dirty plastic and then you're taking it to a place to get recycled. But the other challenge was that it was expensive, especially at that time, to do the recycling. And so virgin plastic was always going to be preferred by the manufacturers of products over recycled plastics because recycled plastics, I mean, even today, recycled plastics are four, five times more expensive than virgin plastics. And so it was one of those things where, yes, the American Chemical Council deliberately uh, uh, misled us, which you know is basically funded by the oil industry. But also, yes, consumers wanted to actively be misled because... Um, they love plastic. I mean, remember, even even 10 years ago or 15 years ago, when all of these single-use cleaning products came out, like the Swiffer and those kinds of things, people are like, yes, please, I want to move away from mops. I would love to like use one-time disposable cleaning products, right? And so... So I would say that, you know, it's both sides, right? The public wanted to be misled, and the American Chemical Council was like, absolutely, we're happy to pay to mislead you. I definitely want to disagree with you here because it was clear in the 80s and into the 90s that consumers were very concerned about plastic use. And the industry came together in private meetings and said, we've got to do something about this or we're going to face serious pressure. And so, yes, consumers love these products, but consumers would pick all sorts of other products if they had the option. And these organizations and companies deliberately came together to fool people. This is exactly the conversation we're having about fossil fuel use generally and and how to think about the structural problems in place that have created climate change in the first place. It's not about individual actions. Like a lot of the individual actions you take in your life don't add up to that many, uh, to that much of a reduction in carbon emissions. In reality, it's a handful of companies that have contributed to the vast majority of emissions. They have fooled us into thinking that it's an individual problem. And this is the exact same thing. So when we sit here and say consumers want to be fueled, I don't actually think that's true. And the industry came together because they were scared of consumers worried about plastic waste. Yeah, and they created this complicated numbering system. So <laughs> so in uh, where I live in Arlington County, they say, we'll recycle any plastic except number five. And I'm like, so everything we look at, uh, you know, anything that has a five on it, we throw out and everything else we recycle. Well, most of it, three through seven, you really can't do anything with it all. It's only one, which are the water bottles and dish soap containers or which are the PET, P-E-T, have P-E-T in them, or the number twos, which are like laundry detergent bottles, milk jugs. Um, those are the ones that can be recycled. Even that is expensive, but those are the ones that actually work to recycle. And all the other stuff just has to be buried or burned or go somewhere else. So it's, it, but it's infiltrated into every single municipality and county. And mine is a really good muni. We're very environmentally conscious, but I don't know where my plastic goes once I deposit it in my bin. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I'm so fired up about this is because I'm learning a lot of this new information and I'm, 
I feel duped as a consumer. I have lived my entire life thinking that a lot of the waste, the, a lot of the plastics waste is being recycled. And when China stopped taking our plastic waste and we realized that we couldn't just ship our plastic waste overseas, it became very clear that the economics of recycling weren't working. And so I think in the last couple of years, I, like a lot of other consumers, have realized that a lot of that waste wasn't being processed in the way that I thought it was. And now this new information comes out showing that, in fact, it was the industry itself lying to us, duping us because they knew that consumers would be concerned about it. And so I'm just fired up because, like, I, fe I mean, I feel lied to. I feel like I have made decisions throughout my entire life thinking there was a completely different outcome and it was not true. Right. But like, but but think about it a different way. Right. So I. I knew in great detail that we were being duped 15 years ago. Um, and, you know, when I was an Aspen fellow, we did a whole thing. You know, Adam um, was like part of our, our group from Method Soap. And, you know, he makes bottles, right? From um, Adam Lowry made bottles from recycled ocean plastic from Hawaii, right? Those sort of like grayish bottles that you can buy at Target. And um, we worked really hard in California, Washington State, and Oregon to partner with British Columbia to like mandate uh, recycling of plastics, right? Coca-Cola and Pepsi joined us and said, yes, you're right. We should actually create mandatory extended producer responsibility, which means the manufacturers of those products are now responsible financially for the recycling of those products. Those laws have still not been passed. And and part of the thing that, that I'm suggesting is that it is a pain in the ass, right? Like when you think about like single-use plastic, Right? The alternative is I get a little bag that's made out of some sort of fabric, and then every time I'm done using it, I take it to the sink and I wash it with soap, and then I stick it on some sort of like little straw-like mechanism that like I put next to my, um, you know, my sink to like dry the, the bag. And I do it. But it's a pain. I could see why people are like, I'm going to look the other way, and I'm going to believe whatever these folks are telling me, because... Even me, who's like completely educated on microplastics and how they might cause cancer and how many fish are actually dying from all this stuff, is like, this is such a pain. I would rather have single-use plastics. And I just, I, I also would say that the amount of energy that I spend using hot water to clean those bags versus the infinitesimal amount of energy that is in one small disposable plastic bag from an energy footprint standpoint, I am doing things that are worse for the planet than using single plastics. And so I think this is a super complicated thing. And I would say the only way to solve it is severe government regulation. You basically need to say, we are going to make it the responsibility of the Chemical Council and all of its members to mandatorily recycle up to 100% of all plastics, which is what they're voluntarily saying they might do by 2040. But but I, I do think that the there there is a practical challenge here, which I don't think we're acknowledging. Yeah. So I do a lot on recycling and refining of critical materials. So metals are infinitely recyclable. So it makes tons of sense. You re recover a lot of wealth from materials of all kinds. Plastic is mostly air, so it's very hard to recover very much of that. But you can do this through policy, as Jigger said. So just in our area, D.C., P.G. County, Montgomery County have banned plastic bags and foam, for example. So you can ban products. But there's also legislation that has been introduced. It's called Break Free from Plastics Pollution Act. And it's uh, the House and Senate both have bills. They're all Democrats. So in the Senate, it's Tom Udall from New Mexico and Merkley from Oregon. In the House, it's Lowenthal from California and Clark from Massachusetts, and they're a bunch of Democratic co-sponsors. And those do things like requiring corporate responsibility for pollution, um, incentivizing innovation to make reusable products, and items that can actually be recycled instead of just saying they can be recycled, have a beverage container refund program, because we have done that before with bottle bills, um, reducing and banning certain single-use plastic products. So just like get the ones out of the market that are not recyclable, um, establishing minimum recycle content requirements for beverage containers, and then spurring massive investment in U.S. domestic recycling and composting infrastructure. And that is 
really important because that creates tons of jobs. And you can essentially do that in any sector that needs to be recycled, all kinds of mixed papers and plastics and metals, um, all the way to very, you know, electronic ways. We need more infrastructure. And if we have that, if we can create infrastructure, you know, there are two pieces. One is the collection. So we can collect all this crap and end up putting it in, you know, in landfills. Or we can collect it and send it to facilities that can break it down and pre-process it and then refine it and create new materials. But those don't exist very often, especially on the very end refining. So if we can if we can establish a network and have a policy that really does this to make sure that all along the supply chain, there is a place to send it and it works and it is recycled, then we'll create jobs and help the environment. Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I also would say that I, I do want to call out just the extraordinary leadership by Kenya, which has gone so far as to ban plastic and is now basically under assault by the oil industry and, you know, frankly, the U.S. government through its trade practices um, to try to get them to reverse that ban. And part of the reason Kenya is doing that is because when China said, we're no longer going to take your dirty plastic waste, all these municipalities across the United States are like, what the hell do we do with all this stuff? We don't want to bury it underground because we know how bad it is. And so, like, what do we do with it? And they're trying to figure out how to dump it into Africa. And, you know, Kenya's like, no, not on my watch. And it's one of those things where I do think that policymakers, particularly state policymakers, who really control most of the waste um, supply chain, uh, regulation. Like, I, I do think that they really need to step up and figure this out. It's not actually that difficult. I would say that, I mean, at Generate, we've seen 50 plus business plans on how to do it. And these are like facilities four, five, and six. So facilities one, two, and three are already up and running and they work. Yes, they're like twice as expensive, three times as expensive, four times as expensive virgin plastic. But remember, when you buy a bottle of something that's made of recycled plastic, the total increase by tripling or quadrupling the cost of that plastic is a penny, right? So like the $7.46 that you pay for like liquid plumber or whatever, like would go up to an, an, an extra penny, right? And so these are not large numbers for the consumer uh, you know, product manufacturers. And on top of it, the consumer product manufacturers want to make this change. They get the fact that the gig is up and their consumers are pissed and they want to make that change, but they cannot be responsible for the entire uh, recycling supply chain. So policymakers, I think, have to meet them, you know, more than halfway. And Jigger, what do we do about the oil and gas industry? I mean, they're looking at plastics as like long-term business model. 20% of the oil production by 2050 is going to go into plastics. Yeah, that's the big question I think we we also want to answer, which is like there there was a plastics boom already underway in the U.S. The shale boom yielded a lot of uh, ethane, which can be changed into ethylene, which is the building block of plastic. And experts are saying that the new boom in petrochemicals is going to come from both oil and gas. How important is this for the fossil fuel industry? It's critically important, right? So when you go to a refinery and you input a barrel of oil, right, and it costs you X dollars, you then get 100 products out the back of the refinery, everything from bitumen, which is used on roads. And oh, by the way, bitumen's not the best product for roads. We use it because it comes out of the refinery. The best product for roads are cement, which would actually reduce friction and give everybody a four mile per gallon increase in their fuel economy. But leaving that to the side, right? There's the the refineries already make more money on these products than they do gasoline and diesel. Gasoline and diesel just happen to be the volume leaders. But the amount of money they make on like waxes, paraffins, plastics, all this other stuff, just to put it in perspective, right? It's like the equivalent of charging $20 a gallon for gasoline is what they get for the waxes, the paraffins, the plastics, right? So that is where they make a ton of money. And this is why, like, remember Solazyme and some of those other companies? That's why they were trying to use, uh, trying to make waxes and paraffins, because that's where they could get paid a lot more for their bio uh, equivalents. And so, yes, they are going to do this. But this is, again, like, this is a, a tech, this is a conversation that we continue to have on this podcast around what the right way to deal with this is. 
I think demonizing the oil companies is fine because it's fun, but it's not the right way to solve these problems. The right way to solve the problems is to ban internal combustion engines, is to ban and regulate plastics, right? Like that's the right way to solve the problem. To suggest that the oil companies have to be magnanimous and figure out a way to not pursue profits, but instead pursue environmental goals is ridiculous, right? They are absolutely, positively the organization that doesn't do that. Right, that is not their role in life. It's the same with like, um, you know, the big mining companies who mine cobalt, and you're like, it's your fault that you're mining cobalt in the DRC and supplying Tesla. No, it's Tesla's fault for using cobalt. So I was really glad to see that Tesla like said that they're phasing out cobalt during their battery day a few days ago. And so I just think that I think end use cases is where policy should regulate. And not saying that people need to be ESG experts and figure out how to like, you know, just do the right thing at the expense of their shareholders. Yeah, but what you're talking about here is pretty massive policy intervention, no matter which way you shake it. And these oil companies, these fossil fuel companies are going to go kicking and screaming. You know, the whole reason why we're in this position in the first place is because they saw regulation, potential regulation coming down the road. So the demonization, attacking them, recognizing their role in this problem is a crucial part of mobilizing people to actually make change or put pressure on policymakers to put those policies in place. And I just think that people should be really angry about this because this is the perfect microcosm of how these companies have lied about climate change. It just so happens that the impact is right on your front doorstep. The stuff that you put in your bin thinking it's going somewhere and having a second life is not actually doing that. And we've known that for decades and decades. And these companies, according to the documents unveiled by Frontline and NPR show that they knew that from day one and they put these campaigns in place to make us all feel better and circumvent regulation. So I just feel like the anger should be there. It's not about being fun. It's about creating the pressure that these companies have never really had. Yeah, absolutely, Stephen. And I think NPR and others shining a light on this is really important and showing that it's not just plastic straws. It's everything we use every single day. But let me just give you one more thing to respond to, Stephen, is that all of this outrage, all of these things is exactly how this played out with tobacco. And guess what? We never banned cigarettes, ever. So in fact, we are funding our healthcare system on the backs of people who are addicted to a substance because we don't have the guts to actually ban it, right? And this is what I'm saying we need to like resolve within our country. Guess what? We did have the the guts to ban the incandescent light bulb. And guess what happened? Because of that, electricity consumption in the United States hasn't changed materially since 2003. And so I just think that from a policy standpoint, let's take that outrage that you feel and that many other people feel, and let's channel it into actual policy that solves the problem, as opposed to vilifying these folks and then letting them operate like we did the tobacco industries. Yeah. I mean, I think we're saying largely the same thing. I just disagree with you about the vilification piece because I think that we that 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 can often mobilize people or put pressure on policymakers. But when it comes ultimately, when it comes to the policymaking piece, I, I think we're saying the same thing. Let's move into our third topic. We're going to talk about FERC. You know, it's a big job to be in charge of the transmission and sale of electricity across state lines. Um, that is, of course, the job at FERC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which we revisit every now and then. It's not always the most exciting agency to follow, but some weeks really stand out. First, it was nominees for FERC's empty seats getting grilled in the Senate. Senators wanted to know whether FERC was to blame for California's recent rolling blackouts. Then the agency declared it would do its own investigation. And then FERC decided to let smaller solar systems play on the grid, rejecting a move uh, to undermine net metering around the country. That was a pretty uh, significant decision. And then in another long-awaited decision, it finally opened the door to distributed energy. And that's going to be the centerpiece of this conversation on what's happening at FERC. So, Catherine, order 2222, what is it? Why is it significant? 
Oh, check your earbags. Here we go with FERC. <laughs> it's it, it's a long-awaited order, let me tell you. Um, I don't know for folks who follow would know that uh, Chairman Bay at the FERC started all of this in 2016. Then when Chairman Chatterjee came in at, with the new administration, he he took the decision to split off storage from distributed energy resources because he felt like DERs were a lot more complicated and because there were so many state implications that he wanted to take more time to process that. And he spent a lot of time talking with me about this. He was very generous um, with his time on you know trying to kind of help walk me through what happened and what the process was. And of course, I was a party to a lot of this too and filed a lot um, and sorry, and submitted a lot of filings in this case. And, you know, a couple of things happened. One is that FERC has changed over several times. So commissioners have come and gone. There are right now only three commissioners, um, Dan Lee, Chatterjee, who's the chair, and Rich Glick. And this order, 2222, passed with a two-to-one majority. Um, But one of the things that they did was very methodically take additional information because technology was changing, implementation was changing, applications were changing over the course of these last few years. And they took all of that information in and built it into this final order. And um, the chairman told me that 2222 came from his daughter's birthday being um, February 2nd. 2012 and his wife's birthday 1022 and that two is a big number in their family and he said this is like one thing I was actually able to have control over was the number of the order <laughs> so he just he just doubled down or quadrupled down on the two and uh, I love it who would have thought that astrological theory would be guiding for naming practices hey you know <laughs> right we take what we can get right <laughs> so what is it exactly yes so what it is is it requires distributed energy resource participation model in all regulated markets. And what that means is that DERs, and let me just tell you what DERs include, because this is also significant. It's any resource on the distribution system or a subsystem behind the customer meter. And it can include electric, you know, storage resources, intermittent generation, distributed generation, demand response, efficiency, thermal storage, EVs, chargers, any resource that is located on the distribution system or behind the meter. So that is significant because it's a lot of technologies. And they are now going to have access to energy capacity and ancillary services markets. And states must allow this. There is no opt-out provision. Remember in 841, the energy storage decision out of the courts said it's fine not to have an opt-out for states. However, there is an opt-in for smaller utilities, and that sort of um, helps the co-ops and small municipalities that are under 4 million megawatt hours of sales. But still, this includes about 75% of the megawatt hours sold by utilities in the U.S. And it's only FERC jurisdictional markets. So it's only the states that that fall under system operators of FERC jurisdiction. So it does not include Texas, for example, under ERCOT. All different resource types have to be allowed. And even one resource can be considered an aggregation. Aggregators, which are groupings of of resources together can be a single point of the system operator contact. There's a minimum 100 kW size, but no maximum size. And the system operator is supposed to propose locational requirements that are as geographically broad and technically feasible as possible. So you can have like multi-node aggregations, which is also really helpful. Um, The metering and telemetry requirements have to be reasonable. So it can't be the same requirements that like a 500 megawatt gas plant would have. It It would have to be reasonable for that aggregation. They have to allow dual participation in retail programs. So, you know, part of the issue is, can you take advantage of something on the retail side and the wholesale side? And this said, yes, you can. Can. And the timing is once this is published in the Federal Register, it will be in effect in 60 days. And then the system operators have to file compliance filings within 270 days of that. So full implementation really looks like something like 2022. Woo, the Catherine Hamilton FERC roller coaster. How's <laughs> it feel, Jigger? Catherine, um, on that D- the DR point, how does this interact with FERC Order 745, which Wellinghoff put in place in 2012, which still, frankly, hasn't been implemented across the country. Right. That's so interesting because, of course, 745, we won at the Supreme Court 6-2 decision. Um, and that was to allow demand response in markets, in energy markets. And 
that that still stands. Um, this actually built on that, and 841 built on that. So I think this is really opening it up to just about any resource that you can imagine that wants to participate in the markets. So um, I see this as really pro-market. I think Chairman Chatterjee sees this really as what he's the most proud of. He told me that. He said, this proves that I'm a markets guy. I'm not an ideologue. Everybody thought I was just an ideologue, and that's not necessarily the case. I'm pro-markets. I'm pro-technology. I'm pro-opening this up to competition and pro-consumer. And I think this shows that we're taking some big steps that way. I was I was super happy about this when it came out. Yeah, I, I'm like I was ecstatic when I saw this come out. I mean, as you know, I've been investing in this for the better part of ten years, right? The PJM had a lot of these types of experimental pilot programs where electric water heaters could participate in you know the PJM market, and um, you know you could figure out other sort of aggregated DERs. And then they sort of change the rules every two years. Um, when you start to get some success, they pull the rug out from underneath you. It's a very Charlie Brown and Lucy moment. Um, but, you know, it, it is something that even in California, they haven't really allowed DERs and DR to participate as we've ranted on in the last few episodes of the podcast. And so, you know, I, I do think that the severity of this is... And, and the potential impact here is just not to be underestimated. I think when we think about how uh, electric cars can be used um, as part of your house, I mean, and just, you know, your refrigerator, your water heater, when you think about rewiring America and how, you know, in a Biden administration, you might actually get 12 million homes to get weatherized. Um, all those homes could become, you know, like, places where you could get revenue from DERs. It's it's one of those things where I think this is actually going to have a bigger impact um, on the way the grid operates and how markets operate than anyone is truly giving it credit for right now. Yeah, and I think that the devil will be in the details. So remember, each of the ISOs, the system operators, have to file a participation model. And those models will vary. So I think it's incumbent on all of us as stakeholders to watch and to provide input as those models are developed to make sure that we are all actually able to participate and that there aren't barriers. So, you know, so that some of the states that already have, like New York has a DER participation model that's been languishing. Maybe it's not perfect, but maybe they would be able to get that through faster. So I think there, there are some reasons to keep participating and keep on putting pressure. But I think what this also does is it is it really forces utilities to consider this too, because utilities are going to have to be part of this. And they've known it's coming. They've been fighting you know, all of this and trying to just get incremental progress. And this is going to force some leapfrogging. Mm, I love it. Love, <laughs> love me the leapfrogging. Yep. Let's leapfrog into some free electrons. Catherine, what do you got this week? Yeah, so I was doing a little thought experiment because obviously I always have a zillion free electrons. And I was like, oh, there's this and this and this. But what I noticed when I was going through all these stories that I was reading is that one common denominator was that there were all these states that were doing things. And and Jigger mentioned this before. So there's, you know, Governor Whitmer from Michigan announced an executive order to, to be the ninth state in the U.S. Climate Alliance, you know, going carbon neutral by 2050. Um, the Cal California Governor Newsom is is talking about an executive order to ban new gas-powered vehicles and also to ban fracking. Um, Maine PUC just approved the most renewables, 500 megawatts at once ever. Um, in Illinois, there's a new climate jobs. Illinois, a group of labor unions that is doing grassroots organizing. And I was looking at all these and going, well, what is, what's going to hold up? You know, we've talked about executive orders, not really, you know, as soon as the legislature comes in, they're overturned. And even Gavin Newsom has said, look, we need the legislation on banning fracking. I can't just do that. I can't wave a magic wand. We need the legislature to act. And whereas the main PUC, when they took a decision on all these projects, that's going to hold up. That will be durable. And it's just interesting thought experiment to see what can we do in states and what can be sustainable? And what are the different mechanisms and tools that we can use and organizing principles that we can have in each state to really move forward? And I would just I just noticed that because so much happened this week and thought it was an interesting thought experiment. Yeah, no, I love it. It's um well, I mean, we've been working at the state level, as you know, for 
15 plus years. And I really do think that it is the key to a durable uh, investment framework uh, where we can actually confidently invest at scale. Jigger, what's your free electron? So I wanted to do a little bit of log rolling. Rob uh, Gramlich and I uh, published a piece in Utility Dive around the next decision that we're hoping from FERC. So FERC is currently in the final throes of their smart initiative around transmission. For those of you who don't know, um, 50% of all of our transmission lines use less than 25% of their capacity. And a lot of it can easily be unlocked by uh, smart technologies. Um, Senator Heinrich uh, joined, uh, well, actually led 14 other senators to, you know, write a letter to the FERC saying this is super important, please you know, make this happen because utility companies really just don't have any incentive to unlock this capacity without getting paid handsomely for it. And FERC's ruling would like, you know, set down some rules on how to pay them handsomely to do the right thing. So, um, so check it out. We'll link to that one in the show notes. And Catherine, I guess that gives you more reason to talk about FERC. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> so I am out here recording in my car. And in little do you know, but in the hour before we started recording, I was pacing around the house trying to avoid this mower sound, this, you know, massive mower uh, just a few houses down from me. And it's permeating the entire house and it was going to ruin our recording. And luckily it stopped right before I pressed the record button. But I am here in the suburbs in the Berkshire Mountains and I three days in a row I've been taking work calls and I've been disturbed by mowers. I have to wander around the house to try to get away from mower sounds. And uh, and I'm, I'm not joking either. Literally three days in a row. Everyone loves to mow their lawns here, and they all use these big industrial mowers because everyone has really big lawns. Um, and it got me thinking this morning, where are the electric lawn mowers? I mean, think about the things the, that we tolerate in our neighborhoods. I mean, the, 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 the sound, the decibel level of mowers of this size that I'm seeing out here are anywhere between 85 and 100 decibels. Now, anything over 80 decibels, if you're exposed to that for um, a significant amount of time, that can cause hearing loss. Uh, you know, and if you remember, if you every six decibels is a doubling of loudness. So if you're thinking the difference between 85 and 100 decibels, that is massive. And some of these industrial mowers that we commonly see around our neighborhoods uh, are extremely intrusive. And so look, like a lot of people, I like the sound of a mower. It brings, it makes me nostalgic. I like the smell of fresh cut grass. But we tolerate these ex- extremely intrusive noises in our neighborhoods. You know, the two-stroke engine of a leaf blower. They're actually, like, really significantly disruptive. And so it made me wonder, um, how big is the electric mower market anyway? And it turns out that it's, you know, growing significantly, but it's still pretty small when you consider, like, the overall number of units that are sold around the world. And this year, it looks like the... Um, electric lawnmower market will hit about a billion dollars in revenue, which could be, you know, between 2016 and 2025 represent 92% growth. But still, the number of units sold is a fraction of the gasoline-powered engines. And so, I don't know, I just was thinking about it, and I wondered, Jigger, you might know this, what's up with the electric mower market? Why isn't it bigger? And why do we tolerate these sounds in our neighborhoods and communities, it seems like a really ripe opportunity. Yeah, no, I think it's growing really fast. I mean, you know, one thing to note is that your two-stroke engine from your mower actually will, if you mow regularly, will produce more um, harmful emissions than your car in a year, right? So that's how polluting it is. Um, And the other thing I'd say is that what's happening is there's a bunch of companies who've combined electric mowers with AI, and they now basically geofence your yard, and it just automatically mows for you. And you know, and some of them are actually even solar powered. And so it finds a nice spot in the sun, it recharges, and then it like mows whenever it needs to, um, without you having to deal with it. And if you don't have a sunny spot, then it you know it parks itself into a charger 
um, and does that. So they're they're selling that at all of uh, three farmers markets I go to near here. Oh my God, that sounds terrifying. I'd be terrified that something <laughs> would happen to my dog or my children. I used to have. I so saw. I've always had an electric mower. I had one with a with a plug in. You know, I had one with a long electric cord for a long time until my son who would cut my grass cover running over the cord. So I now I've got one with a battery. It's kind of lame. I have to charge it three different times over the course of the day as I as I mow my grass, but um they still make noise. It's not like they're silent. I'm still using a push mower, so mm. I love those. I'll make the leap from push to electric. I always feel like I feel like those make it look like you've had goats out chewing on your grass. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well that's gonna mark the end of the show. Uh, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah are my wonderful co-hosts. The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media, and Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to show your support and help us grow, we ask it every time, but it's as meaningful every week. Uh, send out the word on social media or give us a rating and review at Apple Podcasts or just send a link to a friend and colleague. Word of mouth is still really important. And we can be found anywhere you get your podcasts. So be sure to be with us next week. Uh, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the fast-changing world of energy. Thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon. Whew, I need some air. Whew.